0: The tale of the martyrdom of Ammonihah gives us a lesson on the ancient patriarchal priesthood, another opportunity to ask ourselves the eternal question of why a good God permits evil, and a touching example of forgiveness. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you for joining me again for Gospel Doctrine. Today's shout-out goes to Ollie. Uh, I mentioned Ollie before because I, I said that he was being baptized on the day that I was recording and then, uh, or in the week that I was recording, and then his baptism had to be canceled because of quarantine concerns, and that baptism occurred today. So congratulations, Ollie. I, uh, I know we don't know each other, but I've heard about you, and uh, you're, I believe you're my youngest listener. And I'm very proud of you. I watched your baptism over FaceTime. So congratulations and uh, well done. So today we're discussing the chapters 13 through 16 of Alma. And this is a direct continuation, in fact, mid-speech from the lesson we went over last time. Now, we wanna, I want to remind you a little bit of what Alma was discussing with the people of Ammonihah. So as you remember, the people of Ammonihah... Are wicked to the point where they kicked him out of their city once. They spat upon him. They reviled him. And Alma was leaving, and then he had a vision that the same angel who appeared to him at the time of his conversion said, "Go back to Ammonihah and try again. And this time the Lord will bless you." We found out that he'd been fasting for many days, and he meets Amulek, and then they begin talking to the people. They. Their main encounter is with an evil man named Zeezrom, and he's part of this agitator class of Ammonihah, people who make their living off of making sure that there is discontent and bitterness and strife among the people of Ammonihah, because if there are, then they bring a lot of court cases to be adjudicated, and the lawyers and the judges thus get paid. And so Zeezrom is one of these wealthy lawyers who has been made wealthy uh, off the backs of creating misery among the people that he is purporting to serve. So just as our chapters for today are about to begin, what has just happened is that Zeezrom has been humbled. Alma and Amulek have been given insight into his thoughts, and his thoughts were that he would deceive them, lie to them and say, I will pay you to deny the truth of what of the gospel that you're preaching. And they saw that he was lying. And this led into a discussion of the fall, the, the way that death came upon mankind, and how the first death, as, as Alma called it, became an endpoint, a necessary endpoint to our probationary state. But the second death was the one that was to be feared. And that is when God decides that you have chosen to be absent from his presence forever. So, this is what where Alma has discussed thus far. And at the beginning of Alma chapter 13, he says something interesting. He says, Cite your minds, my brethren, I would that you would cite your minds forward. So, remember, we have to go back a little bit. At the beginning of chapter 13, we have to go back and get a little bit of context to understand what he's talking about. He's just been talking about the fall of Adam and Eve. And then he said, Cite your minds forward from the fall, remember, to the time that God gave these commandments. Now, at the end of chapter 12, again, uh, if you go back to verses 32 through 34, Alma 12, 32 through 34, you'll read that the first commandments that God gave were in the Garden of Eden, and those commandments were transgressed. And then in the world that resulted after the fall... God gave a second set of commandments. So when he says these commandments in verse 1 of chapter 13, Alma is talking about these second commandments that God gave, which were, don't do evil and repent and harden not your hearts. If you will harden not your hearts, then you will obtain mercy from God. And so Alma is explaining that God gave early commandments to men right after the fall, and he sent angels to talk to them. He didn't leave them in the dark. Now... Chapter 13 begins with this extended discourse, and it's quite repetitive. It's very interesting how repetitive it is. It's probably one of the most repetitive passages I can think of in the Book of Mormon. He talks about ancient high priests, and I realized as I was studying for this lesson that I have always misread this passage. I probably have, from my memory, I have always assumed that this was Mormon, talking about the time of Alma, that men in the time of Alma were called as high priests after the order of Melchizedek. And that's not the case at all. Uh, I'm not saying that there were no, there was no Melchizedek priesthood among the Nephites. What I'm saying is that is not the point of Alma's discourse. This is not Mormon talking. This is actually from directly from the words of Alma. So this is Mormon transcribing rather than uh, summarizing or abridging, a record of Alma. So this is Alma preaching to the people of Ammonihah. Remember, these are wicked people. And he's telling them about an ancient group of high priests who have been called from the foundation of the world. He's talking about the the workings of the Melchizedek priesthood. So the question that we can ask ourselves as he's teaching this lesson is, why was this such a powerful lesson that... People that were, they lived, remember the people, his audience are the people who have hardened their hearts to the point where they once cast him out already, and they, they live in a permanent state of chaos. That's, that's how I would describe their society. And yet, uh, this lesson is the one that the Spirit prompts Alma to choose, to actually get some of them, a great many of them, to change their minds and to be converted. So as we're reading about Alma's lesson to them, we can ask ourselves that question. What was it about this lesson that was so powerful? So first of all, who is he talking about? What is Alma talking about? What group of high priests is he talking about? I think most people now, if you got this far, if you didn't make the same mistake that I've made, which is to assume that Mormon is actually giving us, he, he's speaking to people in modern day and giving us a review. On the high priest of Alma's time. Once you get past that mistake, then you might make the further mistake that this is Alma preaching about the time of Melchizedek. Now, in the Doctrine and Covenants, we have a a reference of uh, Joseph Smith that Joseph Smith makes that Melchizedek was the son of Noah, that Melchizedek and Shem, the son of Noah, were the same person. So. Uh, you would be forgiven for thinking that this was, that Alma was teaching about Melchizedek because Melchizedek was a great high priest. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul speaks of Melchizedek as the greatest of high priests because he was on, he, he does describe in the New Testament the priesthood of Melchizedek as being on a different order than that that came after Moses. So therefore, even in mainstream Christianity, there is an idea that Melchizedek was the greatest of all, and Paul, as proof, Paul uses the idea that Abraham paid tithes to Moses, uh, I'm sorry, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, and therefore Melchizedek must have been his greater in the priesthood. We have further support for this idea in the book of Abraham. Now, the very first chapter of Abraham, the first three, two or three verses, Abraham describes his desires, and what his desires are, are to be a prince of peace, to seek after the blessings of the fathers, right? He wants the blessings that he's heard about and that he's read about in whatever his scriptures were, whatever teachings that have been passed down to him. But remember this, so he, he wants to be a prince of peace. He wants to seek after the blessing of the fathers, namely the priesthood, and be a father of many nations. So this, this dovetails quite nicely with what we read in the New Testament because we know that Abraham had learned these things from someone, and the the New Testament teaches us that he he did pay his tithes to Melchizedek. In fact, Melchizedek was someone unto whom Abraham gave great honor. However, here in the Book of Mormon, in verse fourteen of Alma chapter sixteen, we read. After, remember, before this before this verse before verse fourteen, Alma has already taught about an entire group of high priests, and then he says in verse fourteen, he says. Humble yourselves, even as the people of the in the days of Melchizedek, who was also a high priest after the same order which I have spoken, who also took upon him the high priesthood forever. So what that tells me is that the people that Alma was talking about before verse fourteen were not the group of priests, high priests, over whom uh, Melchizedek presided. So, if Melchizedek was the son of Noah and he was the great high priest that everyone talks about. In fact, the the high priesthood came to be named after him. Then, who is Alma talking about before this point? So, again, we can go to the pearl of great price for the answer. In the book of Moses, we learn about Enoch, who preached similarly to how Melchizedek is described here in Alma chapter 16. They both called their people to repentance. They both took a civilization full of wickedness and turned it around into a civilization of great righteousness. In fact, Enoch created a city, a, a civilization of such righteousness that God could no longer leave them on the earth. And you could read about the prophet Enoch in Moses chapters 6 and 7. So when you learn about the the city of Zion that Enoch created, it seems to me that that is what Alma is describing. And it also seems that the people of Ammonihah, that what seems very obvious, whether or not I'm right about this being uh, Enoch and his his group of high priests, what seems undeniable is that the people of Ammonihah had scriptures describing the people that Alma is talking about. So Alma is preaching about a group of ancient high priests that is lost from our New Testament. I'm sorry, lost from our Old Testament. We don't have any record of them in the Old Testament. Incidentally, even in the book of Moses, it doesn't explicitly talk about a group of high priests that Enoch ordained. It talks about the power of Enoch as a prophet and then the great visions that he received after uh, he, he founded his great city, Zion. So this is new doctrine for us, actually. This is doctrine, I should say, that we don't find anywhere else. Uh, and therefore, it's very interesting and profitable to examine it closely, which is why I'm going into a little more detail. First of all, these are priests. Alma is describing men called in the high priesthood of God after the order of Son of God. Notice he doesn't change the name of the priesthood until after he talks about Melchizedek. This is another clue to us that he's talking about the time before Melchizedek lived, the time before the flood. So these priests are described, we should, I'm going to list for you the ways in which they're described. They're ordained after the order of the Son of God, who is without beginning of days or end of years. They explicitly serve as types of Christ. So the ordinances they performed were known to be types of Jesus Christ, were known to point for people's minds forward to the time in which they would receive remission of their sins. The high priests were called according to their faith and their good works, and they were called with a calling that was prepared with and according to what's called a preparatory redemption. Once they had their garments made white in the blood of the Lamb, then they could not look upon sin except with abhorrence. And after they served faithfully and endured to the end, they entered into the rest of God. So this is the theme of today's lesson is the rest of the Lord. What does that mean? And this is one of the things that Alma is charging, admonishing the Ammonihites to aspire to, is to enter into the rest of God. So after he talks about that, then he gives the example of Melchizedek, who was also one of these high priests. And the people in the time of Melchizedek did repent. And so therefore, Melchizedek founded a peaceful society and became what was called a prince of peace remember that was something that abraham aspired to be and we can guess that abraham heard that term from melchizedek melchizedek in fact means the king of righteousness and because his city was called salem which means or shalom which means peace in hebrew then he was the king of salem or the prince of peace an interesting summary on our knowledge of the high priesthood now, a couple of points I want to make. One is that Alma says that they were called according to the foreknowledge, the infinite foreknowledge of God, meaning that God knew that they would be righteous enough to be called. But then he makes it more clear that, that if their brethren had been as righteous as they, they would have been given the same privileges, given the same calling. And in my mind, the reason that Alma is teaching this lesson is to tell the people of Ammonihah, look, Melchizedek founded this ancient civilization, the city of Salem. Enoch founded this ancient peaceful civilization, the city of Zion. Here I am in the midst of you, a prophet, telling you about this high priesthood, telling you about people who had the choice. They had a calling prepared from the foundation of the world, what he called a preparatory redemption. They had been given the opportunity to be where they were. What what Alma is saying is it's not an accident that you're here. And the fact that you have rejected the truth of God is not going to determine your fate. You can change your course right now, today. And we can be, you and I, you the people of Ammonihah, and I, Alma, we can be just like Melchizedek and Salem, or Enoch and Zion. We can create this same kind of society. And this was such a convincing lesson to the people of Ammonihah that many people were converted. It also says, that he, he said many words that were not written. So we don't know if this was the, f- the fullness of the message. But after he finishes talking about the high priesthood, he says, I feel, in, I feel for you anxiety unto pain. I wish I could express to you everything that I feel, but I just, words are not sufficient for me to tell you. All of the desires that I have for you, I think that's how God feels towards us. God wishes he could speak in stronger language. In fact, we have this, Over the next few chapters, we'll read a couple of uh, examples of the same feeling. One is Ammon, after his mission to the Lamanites, he rejoices so much that it's almost like his spirit is separating from his body. He describes it that way. And then Alma says, uh, oh, that I were an angel and could speak with the trump of God. So they both have this, this desire to be able to pierce the hearts of people and get them to repent because they know so perfectly of the uh, rewards that await both wicked and righteous choices. So that's the lesson of Alma in chapter 13, and it sort of terminates at the end of the chapter with the final prophecy of the coming of Christ. He says, we only wait, this is in verse 23, I'm sorry, verse 25, we only wait to hear the joyful news declared by angels at the time of his coming, And it could be any day now. Now, as we know, it's several years. It's even a few decades before that day will arrive. But he does have, in the grand scheme of things, in the course of history, he does have the time frame more or less right. Uh, So perhaps, you know, Nephi said that that Christ would come 600 years from the time my father left Jerusalem. So perhaps they hadn't done a good enough job of record keeping to know exactly how many years it had been at that time or perhaps alma hadn't re- had, didn't have access to every single record that he would need to have in order to know exactly how many years it had been so apparently uh, at one time the time frame was very well understood uh, exactly understood and that knowledge had been lost by the time of alma but what he's saying is and he's and he's mostly right that christ is soon to come uh, it was in the time of his his grandson, in fact. Um, so it wasn't it was only a few decades after he died, a couple of decades, that Christ was born, and then it was even longer, obviously, that the resurrected Christ appeared to the Nephites. So there are more unwritten teachings after this, but the upshot is that at the end of Alma's speech, many believed. So the speech worked. So first he talked about the nature of life, as a preparatory, as a temporary time, as a preparatory state, and death as a necessary endpoint to that pre- preparatory state, the necessary of a, the the necessity of a savior, and then the fact that we all enjoy what's called a preparatory redemption. We've all been prepared to be where we are. This was an early form of the doctrine of the pre mortal life. Basically, what Alma was saying was we've all made choices that we don't remember. He was was implying this very strongly. So in Alma chapter 14, there are people who believe, and we don't actually get to hear much about how he proceeded with them. We don't know how much time passes, but it says that there were even more who were angry with Alma and Amulek, obviously, because the agitator class had just had their very livelihood threatened. Remember, this is the same thing that Jesus did. When Jesus went to Jerusalem and and overturned the money changers' temples, he was explicitly threatening the power of that controlled the Temple Mount. And Jewish power was wealth. It meant that people coming from all over Jewry, everyone who came to worship in the temple, uh, was going to patronize their businesses in some form or another. The first way was by changing money, and the second way was by buying animals for sacrifices, and probably a tourist trade around that as well was largely controlled by the priest class in Jerusalem. And all of these things, Jesus was saying, this is an affront to God because you're using the compulsory nature of people's worship to extort money from them, and you're making a profit, you're, you're enriching yourselves on the worship of others, on the humility of others. And because he had pointed that out publicly, they had to kill him or they had to give up their livelihood. Now, Alma and Amulek, because they have pointed out publicly the corruption of these lawyers and judges, they either have to kill him or they have to do what they try to do in verse 3. They wanted to put them away privily, but apparently that didn't work. So, instead what they do is they take Alma and Amulek to an illegal trial, the same way they did with Abinadi, for example. To give you another example, not, not the same group of people in Ammonihah, but the same way that had been done to Abinadi, that would be done to Christ, that would be done to Stephen. When a prophet appears and the law would judge him, most likely the laws are actually righteous laws. People tend to create laws out of their best desires. And so when a prophet is tried by the law, it's usually an illegal trial. This is the situation into which Alma and Amulek find themselves thrust. Before this can happen, Zeezrom, the the wicked lawyer who, who they caught in a trap of words, he, during the final couple of chapters of Alma's and Amulek's discourse, he started to ask questions in a way that is described as diligently. So instead of asking questions to trap them, his motivation changed. In the middle of the speech, and I think this might have been part of what caused a lot of converts to believe on Alma and Amulek's words, was they saw that Zeezrom seemed to be the representative of their lawyers and judges. And then when he changed his tune, I think a lot of observers would have thought, well, if Zeezrom can actually believe this stuff, maybe I can too. In any case, Zeezrom now tries to get them released. So Zeezrom is one of the more complicated characters in the Book of Mormon. Because he starts out as wicked as you can get, and we watch his transformation, I mean, in the very moment. And then we watch his guilt and shame. that We find out later about Alma's guilt and shame. So we see his conversion when he is struck dumb by the angel, and then he's out of it for three days. And then later in Alma chapter 36, we learn what anguish he went through. But Zeezrom, we learn all at, all at the same time. And as I mentioned in our last lesson... For me, this is the evidence, or this is one of the manifestations of the more important pattern in the Book of Mormon, so, uh, or the more important cycle. So when most people talk about the cycle of the Book of Mormon, they talk about the pride cycle, if you remember me saying. But there's another important cycle in the Book of Mormon, and that is the cycle from wicked sinner, evil person, to skeptical convert to repentant sinner, and then to prophet and missionary. And this now, Zeezrom is the fourth or fifth step in this cycle, which began with Abinadi, and then through Alma the elder, and then Alma the younger, and then Amulek, and now Zeezrom. And it keeps happening and happening over and over again that someone who is the worst of sinners, someone who has neglected the call, the word of God, or even worked against it many times... Can, can hear this voice and then transform their life completely. And Zeezrom does the same thing. He puts his safety at risk in order to try to reverse the, the course of events that he set in motion uh, of hostility towards Alma and Amulek, but to no, to no avail. In relatively short order, at least within the narrative, in just a f- the course of a few verses, the faithful converts, the men, the male faithful converts, of Alma and Amulek, are cast out of Ammonihah. So, now we're going to go back a little bit. Uh, I want want to talk about, I want to bring up one more thing about chapter 13, which is this. Uh, Alma only mentions the high priests that are called after the order of the Son of God. In other words, the only people he's talking about in chapter 13 seem to be men. And I think if I were, a, I can't speak as a woman, but if I were a woman, I would feel like I would feel underrepresented in this story. I would feel like somehow that the contributions of people that are like me would have been neglected. And I don't think anyone could deny that uh, those tales are conspicuously absent. So the, the explanation that I would give is number one, The culture of Alma and Amulek doesn't seem to have been as conscious of those concerns as we are today. And number two, the people to whom he's speaking seem to regard these important decisions as coming from the head of the household, the male. And therefore, the males are the ones in chapter 14 being cast out. So the, the fathers, the husbands, are cast out of the city, but their wives and children are kept behind as sort of as a punishment to the people who have made the decision to convert. Now, obviously, conversion is an individual matter. So what we can do as modern-day scholars of these scriptures is to ask ourselves the important question, what would Alma have said? What might he have said if he had been more conscious of the, the other half of his audience and the other half of the people in the, that lived in the times that he was talking about? He would have mentioned the equal contributions of the wives, the mothers, the sisters, and the daughters of these high priests that he mentioned. There is no possible way that they were not contributing in an equal measure to the plan of God. There's no way that a society like Salem or like Zion could be constructed without faithful women every bit as righteous as the men they served with. So again, I guess the two things I would say about uh, this aspect of, of the teaching of chapter 13 is number one, that feeling that something's missing here is real. It's okay to feel like something's missing because I feel it too. I feel like I would love to know not only the about the men who were called as uh, priests, high priests after the order of the Son of God, but about the, the women who served alongside them and whose faith would have been just as necessary to the work. And number two, it does seem to have been culturally appropriate lesson because the the were casting out the men as the decision makers in this in this pattern, so in chapter fourteen we learn that all of the men have been cast out ca- cast out of the city and even stoned and spat upon. So that at the threat of their lives, they've been forced to they've been forcibly ejected. And then there's this scene of martyrdom, where the women and children who are left behind or kept behind are thrown into a fiery pit and burned alive. This is one of the more horrible deaths that I can imagine. In fact, I don't even think that crucifixion compares to the pain that someone would feel being burned alive. So uh, and, and in saying that, I don't mean any disrespect to the death of Christ. I, I know what I believe about the death of Christ, what is is that it was meant as a symbol, but it wasn't meant to be the most painful death that's possible. One of the symbols of Christ's death was that he was lifted up men would lift him up so that later on he would lift all men up before the father so he was he had to be lifted up on a high place the these martyrs the suffering of these martyrs also was a symbol and we don't find out until afterwards what happens is that alman amulek have to watch this entire grisly scene and then afterwards uh, the the chief priest the chief judge comes up to them and says now are you going to continue to to teach these people that they will be cast into a lake of fire and brimstone. So what we, we can infer from this question that what they tried to do was to create hell. They tried as faithfully as they could to reproduce the hell that Alma had been talking about in his lesson. And the interesting thing is he had made it he had taken pains to make it clear that he was speaking metaphorically about a lake of fire and brimstone. He said, the pains that you would feel would be as a lake of fire and brimstone. But they disliked this so much. They they disliked the the implication that they were doing something wrong. As we find out in chapter 15, verse 15, they didn't believe in repentance. Repentance was not a part of the doctrine of the Nehors. And uh, that that is the... Religion to which the people of Ammonihah belong—you remember, Nehor was this man who taught that priests should be prosperous and that people would all be saved, and therefore there was no need to repent. Repentance not part of their doctrine. This, this terrible teaching, this terrible way of thinking, had infected them to the point where they were incapable of change. Now, as Alma and Amulek are watching this happen, Alma, Amulek turns to Alma and says. Why can't we stretch forth our hands and exert the power of God that is in us and put a stop to what's happening? This is an important question, uh, and it brings up one of the questions that I've received via email. Incidentally, if you would like to send a question to the show, then email me at gt at Benjamin did that from Fred- Fredericksburg. He asked the question, I have a a question on the experience of Alma and Amulek when they are witnessing the destruction of women and children. Alma's response to Amulek in verse 11. But Alma said unto him, The Spirit constraineth me, that I must not stretch forth mine hand, for behold, the Lord receiveth them up unto himself in glory. And he doth suffer that they may do this thing, or that the people may do this thing unto them, according to the hardness of their hearts that the judgments which he shall exercise upon them in his wrath may be just. And the blood of the innocent shall stand as a witness against them, yea, and cry mightily against them at the last day. Benjamin says, I'm having a hard time getting the concept of God allowing the death and suffering so that his wrath, so that, quote, his wrath may be just and the blood of the innocent shall stand as a witness. Can you please elaborate and perhaps give context? Benjamin I think this question is about as important a question as anyone could ask from the scriptures. So I thank you for asking it. And the, the bad news is I cannot answer it for you. And uh, so let me elaborate on that a little bit. All I can do is tell you my answer. But this is a question, this is probably one of the very few questions that no one can answer for you. Each person has to answer this question for him or herself. And I'll explain that a little further. Let's revisit in our minds what's going on with Alma and Amulek. Remember, Amulek is someone from the city of Ammonihah. So it is not too much of a stretch for us to imagine that Amulek's own wife and children are in the group of people being thrown into the fire. We learn later that uh, Amulek left behind his father and his dear kindred in Ammonihah, alive, uh, th- uh, so presumably they were still wicked, and when Ammonihah is later destroyed, he would have lost them too. But at this point, we, d- we also know that, Al- uh, that Amulek has a wife and children because he mentions in last week's lesson, he mentioned how his family had been blessed when he took Alma into his home. So we know he has a wife and children. Of course, they would have been converted with him, especially if the implication is that the men are the decision makers, the men are the converts, and the women and children sort of follow along. If that is true, as is implied, then Amulek being converted would mean that his whole family was converted. I think it's a near certainty that when Amulek says to Alma, let's stretch forth our hands and prevent this from happening, it may well have been that he was saying, let's stop my wife and child, children, from dying. Who wouldn't do that, especially a, a prophet of the Lord, who would not say, look, I know that I've had power given to me. Uh, in fact, in last week's lesson, that, that is explicitly said. They had, they had power given to them that they could not be held, and they could stop the works of evil. And Alma's response is not very satisfying to a man who's losing his family he says the spirit constraineth me that i that i shouldn't lift raise my hand and stop this thing a terrible answer if your family is dying to continue this line of questioning i want to go to a chapter that we've already referred to this is moses the book of moses chapter 7 and this is an account of the vision of enoch looking forward into the future and seeing the day of christ and the first thing that Enoch sees is the near future. And by near, I mean, uh, it was centuries away, but it was uh, just a couple of generations away in those days. And he saw the flood. He saw the time at which everyone would be destroyed. Now, as bad as this fire is, as bad as the martyrdom of the saints of Ammonihah is, it's not as bad as the flood. If you think about the all of the events in human history or in scriptural history in which people suffered and God would have a, a reason to mourn over the suffering of people, the flood probably tops the list. And the suffering was so great, and Enoch felt it from his vision. He, it was communicated to him clearly in that vision. He felt it so strongly that he turned away from the vision, and he said, I will not be comforted. And then God said to Enoch, no, I need you to keep looking. You've only, I had to give you the bad news first so that you would understand the good news. And so now look back. And the good news was literally the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He saw the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that actually comforted him to the point where he was, he was moved to exclaim, greater your mysteries, O God, great is your righteousness, I praise you. I can't wait for this wonderful day of redemption. So, the, the point I wanted to make to you was that in this vision, Enoch sees God. He sees tears in God's eyes. God is actually crying, and Enoch says, how is it that you, being God, can cry? Now, this is an interesting passage, and it takes up a great part of what is a very long chapter in the scriptures. It begins in verse 29, Enoch said unto the Lord, how is it thou canst weep, seeing thou art holy and from all eternity? to all eternity. So here's my answer to Benjamin and to others. My answer is, if you want to understand why God allows suffering and why he even makes it part of his plan, all you have to do is read this. I shouldn't say all you have to do. One way to start along the process of understanding that is to read this chapter and recognize that God is also weeping. When you realize that, then the rest of the, the rest of the answer starts to make sense. Because Alma, what Alma said to Amulek was, the first thing he said was, these people will be received to God in glory. What we did, what we have to do when we think about suffering is we have to remember the perspective of God. To put it into human terms, imagine that you had a child that you had sent away to boarding school. And the child didn't like going to boarding school, but you had convinced the child to go because, you said, the things you will learn at boarding school are things I simply cannot teach you here at home. And I've got to have you learn these things because when you come back, you're going to help me in the family business. And then your child goes to boarding school and one day the te- your child's teacher calls you and says, uh, I have to call you, Mr. Holt, I had to call you because your child has done so well in school that there's nothing more we can teach him or her. You should bring this child home because they've learned everything there is to know, and we give them an A+. Plus. We give them full passing marks and they can, a, a full ride scholarship to the college of their choice, or they can come home and help you in the family business at, starting tomorrow. Now, at this point, the child is very attached to boarding school. They have friends there. They've learned to love the life and they're good in school and so they wish they could stay. And maybe the separation is hard or maybe there is uh, some other aspect of school life that bringing them home causes them great pain. Nevertheless, you as a parent would rejoice because your child has proven himself or herself in the school to such an extent that all of your purposes have been fulfilled. So the the goal was never to have them go to school and stay in school forever. The goal was to have them go to school to learn so that they could come home. This is God's perspective with us. He has an eternal perspective. He wants us to come here, but when we have shown that our spiritual development has reached the point where we can receive all of the blessings of eternity, then it's no longer a tragedy for us to die with our limited perspective and especially the perspective of someone who doesn't believe in God or who doesn't understand what Alma explained about life as a probationary state, then death is the ultimate tragedy. But with the, with the added perspective that we learn, not only in these chapters, but elsewhere in modern revelation, the ultimate tragedy is sin. Spencer W. Kimball expressed that idea explicitly in his book, The Miracle of Forgiveness. It is not death that is the ultimate tragedy, but sin is the ultimate tragedy. Now, in saying that, I'm being a little disingenuous because we don't all believe that death is the ultimate tragedy. If you watch an old, the funeral of an old person who has lived a full life and they died quietly in their sleep, no one is extremely—they they don't feel like anything unjust has occurred. Uh, they might be sad that they're going to miss their grandfather or their grandmother— but they don't feel like a tragedy has occurred. So death itself is not the tragedy. An untimely death is the tragedy. And in this case, we have great suffering beforehand. So the fire, death by fire of young people. Now that is a tragedy. So let's reframe that idea just briefly to understand that the purpose of the plan of salvation was to provide agency. And agency is a coin that God uses to buy choices. That's the best way I can phrase it. If God could buy anything in this universe, and he does, he pays heavily in every coin that he can get his hands on. He pays for us to make good choices. If we can make a good choice that is worth all the sacrifice that it cost God to put us there. And the more difficult the choice and the more firm our faith is cemented in our hearts, the more it means to God. Therefore, if you consider how difficult the choice was to choose to believe in the words of Alma and Amulek, when when life is on the line and death by fire is on the line, and the people were nevertheless willing to to refuse to recant their belief in Jesus Christ and their belief in the gospel in the face of suffering and death, that is a choice that is Endlessly precious to God, he is willing to do almost anything to secure it. And the reason is, is because it lasts forever. So if you only read the second part of this verse in Alma chapter 14, it kinda it kind of makes it makes us feel like the reason for God to allow this suffering is so that his judgments will be just. That is part of the reason, but the but the real reason is because he is receiving these souls to himself in glory. The choice that they have made to stand firm in their testimony, in spite of the threat of death, is one that can be made in no other way, and it is one that will resonate throughout eternity. And along with that, remember that God weeps with us. He weeps for the suffering of men and women on the earth. If you go back into the New Testament course that we did last year, there are two or three lessons around the atonement, and I believe it was in the second one that I spoke about the the idea that jesus christ was entering into this kind of existence that only god the father in his in his experience was living and the atonement was not an event that jesus passed through and then emerged the same on the other side it was a doorway on the one hand on the one side of that doorway he lived a mortal existence and on the other side of the doorway he had access to feel all of the suffering of every person that would ever live, that he had ever created. So, and this is my interpretation, so don't take it as as doctrine of the gospel, but I do believe this. It wasn't that Jesus suffered for our sins. It's that Jesus became willing to suffer for our sins. And this became his state of being. He is constantly suffering the sufferings of mankind. And he is constantly feeling all of the joy that comes from us making good choices with our agency. Those two things, for God and for Jesus Christ, are inseparably connected. And to me, the Scriptures convey the lesson that in what might seem to be a grim calculus of eternity, God is willing, it is worth it to God, to trade the choices of a few saints for all the suffering that is required to bring them about. I personally have chosen to believe that there will come a time when all of this will make perfect sense to me, And that belief is reinforced every time I read the scriptures. It becomes easier and easier to believe that God is just and that his choices make sense the more I read the scriptures. It becomes more and more difficult to believe when I get further away from the Spirit. So it is a question that always comes back up, and it always has to be answered anew when we face a new bout of suffering, a new challenge, a loss. Then we have to ask ourselves the question again. Do I truly believe that all of the suffering is worth it? That God knows what he's doing? That there is a reason, that it has meaning what I'm going through? And that God is suffering with me? Do I really believe that? The only way to really believe it is to deepen yourself, as the, as the saints of Ammonihah did, in the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And allow the Spirit to let that understanding penetrate your heart. There is no substitute for that understanding. You cannot receive this answer from someone else. Someone can say to you, God is allowing suffering because it's necessary for agency to exist. That brings suffering into the world. But it doesn't explain everything, and it just, it, even though it's a simple answer, it's not an easy answer. Each person has to allow this answer to penetrate their heart. However, the answer is here. The answer is here in the Book of Mormon, and it's there in the Book of Moses. Now, after Alma and Amulek witness this terrible event, then they're imprisoned. They seem to be the last two believers in all of Ammonihah. The men have been ejected. The women and children have been put to death. And Alma and Amulek are in prison. We don't know how long they're in prison, but we know this. Alma began his mission at the beginning of the 10th year of the reign of the judges. He spent a little bit of time in the land of Melech where he had some success. And then he went to Ammonihah and he spent the rest of the year there, almost the entire year, and it was the 10th month of the year. So they had probably been in prison for months. Uh, they had probably spent some time in Ammonihah strengthening the faith of the people. I can't imagine that one single discourse got the people to such a state where they were willing to die for what they believed. I, I think that uh, Alma and Amulek probably had to spend some time strengthening their faith and teaching. And as the threat as they that they represented became more apparent, that's when the lawyers moved against them. But I could be wrong. It may be that they spent very little time preaching and a lot of time in prison. Remember that Alma also spent some time in Amulek's home before he began to preach. So these are the sequence of events, and it's taken almost a year. So they spend an extended period in prison, being tormented, starved, stripped naked, beaten, and spit upon in the darkness. So this is a horrible prison experience, and it's one that involves torture as well. So Alma and Amulek don't have it easy just because they weren't thrown in the fire. And finally the day arrives when not only the chief judge, but every single member of this agitator class comes into prison and stand around him and say, If God loves you... Then let him save you. Now you can, and I'm going to read this, uh, I'm going to read this verse to you because then I'm going to make, draw a parallel to Jesus Christ. After they had suffered, this is Alma 14:23. It came to pass that after they had suffered thus for many days, and it was on the 12th day in the 10th month in the 10th year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi, that the chief judge over the land of Ammonihah and many of their teachers and their lawyers went into the prison where Alma and Amulek were bound with cords. And the chief judge stood before them and smote them again and said unto them, If ye have the power of God, deliver yourselves from these bands, and then we will believe the Lord will destroy this people, according to your words. Now remember that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the members of the Sanhedrin, this body of Jewish elders, they passed by the hill of Calvary and they looked at Jesus hanging on the cross, and they said, he trusted in God that he would deliver him. Let, let God deliver him if he delights in him. If God truly does love Jesus the way he said, then let God deliver him. So the fact that he was suffering was proof that he was guilty in their mind. Anyone who could be made to suffer was not favored of God. And that is the, that is the corollary, by the way, to the belief that God doesn't allow suffering, that God, a good God could not allow suffering. You have to accept that. If you accept that a good God would not allow suffering, then you also have to accept that anyone who's suffering is not favored of God. Can you see how neither of those make sense? You have to allow that people have choices. Otherwise, man is no different than a tulip or a potato bug. We're all just, or a, or a rock on the side of the road. We're all just things to be acted upon. Alma reiterates here what Lehi taught in 2 Nephi chapter 2, that men became agents unto themselves to act rather than to be acted upon. That is so crucial to the plan that it's repeated many times in the Book of Mormon, but the implications need to be understood by each of us individually, that we are agents unto ourselves to act rather than to be acted upon. So even though... Alma and Amulek are in prison. This is not proof of God's disfavor. Our outward circumstances often can't be used to prove anything. It just so happens that on this day, the power of God filled Alma and Amulek. Once every member of this group had smitten them on the face and spit upon them and reviled them, then the power of God filled them and they leapt to their feet. They broke their bands and the walls, and they called unto God, and the walls of the prison came tumbling down and killed everyone but the two of them. Now, why could this have not happened before? Why did they have to suffer in prison for months? Why did they, uh, if everyone who was there in the prison was going to die, why couldn't they die before everyone was thrown into the fire? And the answer is, we don't always get to know. Or if we do know, the answer isn't all that satisfying because we are still looking at it from an earthly perspective. So Alma and Amulek finally, get out of prison, and they don't forget that they suffered in prison for months. That that kind of suffering doesn't just go away, and they don't forget that they lost loved ones in a fire, and they don't forget that they witnessed horrible suffering. And Amulek especially, they don't they don't forget the loss that they had to endure. They are very much changed when they leave Ammonihah, and they make their way to the city of Sidon, and this is where all of the converts ended up and especially this is where Zeezrom ended up. And Zeezrom, when he hears that Alma and Amulek are alive, he rejoices inside, but he is so racked with guilt, and rightfully so, because he was a contributing founding member, you might say, to the kind of chaos and the kind of evil that gave rise to the ability to put so many people to death. Now, this scene between Alma and Zeezrom is a beautiful scene. It's one where Zeezrom accepts Christ and is able to be healed not only spiritually but physically. He says uh, he he is on death's door because his mind has been dis- so disturbed by the thought that he killed people. Remember, Alma also thought that taking people away from the truth was akin to murder. He called it, a mur- I had murdered many of the children of God because I had taken them away from the truth. And this in this same way, Zeezrom was guilty of the, that very kind of murder. And then he was also sort of implicated in the murders of the martyrs. He was, at least until up to a point, he was part of that same attitude. And he had begun his conversation with Alma and Amulek with the same intent. And so there was much need for him to repent. And this, and this scene between Alma and Zeezrom is very poignant. But what I want to draw your minds to is the scene that's not written here, which is the scene between Zeezrom and Amulek. And that scene we have to imagine. Amulek has lost his family, and Zeezrom was part of it. And here is Zeezrom saying, I want to be forgiven. I want to accept Christ. And now Amulek has a choice. This is such a beautiful moment, and I wish that the Book of Mormon said more about it. But I'm so glad that we get the chance to imagine it. So please, with me, think about it, and think about the choice that Amulek had before him. Now we know, by the way that Alma and Am, uh, Zia, I'm sorry, by the way that Amulek and Zeezrom end up as missionary companions years later to the Zoramites, we know that they reconcile. But in this moment, what must have been the feelings in Amulek's heart as Zeezrom is there, maybe dying, but certainly suffering, what could Zeezrom has, have been thinking? Now, if we're charitable, we imagine that he's thinking, I've accepted Christ, Christ has forgiven me, may Christ forgive you right now, today, in this moment. But what he also may have been thinking is, good, you're hurting, good. Are you suffering? Good, because I just witnessed a lot of suffering, and I just went through a lot of suffering, and it was much worse than this, and you deserve every bit of it, and I hope it gets worse, right? That is a very human tendency that we have, and it is 180 degrees counter to the doctrine of Christ. So that's the point that I want to make today in this lesson, is the scene that is not written between Zeezrom and Amulek, that Amulek is witnessing the the repentance of someone who has done him wrong. I truly believe that he forgave Zezrum, but I don't know when. It may be that he did it in that moment, and it may be that it took him some time. Now we have we do have the account that after Alma and Amulek established the church in Sidon, where all these, first of all, they had all these tried and tested saints who came from Ammonihah who had given up everything for the gospel as a foundation, and they were able to create a church probably around them. And they established the church there. Now, it says in chapter 15 that they established the church inside them and that they had great success there. And the implication is that they tried, again, to contact the people of Ammonihah and try to get them to repent. But this is, in verse 15, is where it says that Nehor's doctrine just didn't include... The need to repent. It was impossible for them to accept the need to repent because they believed in this wicked doctrine of Nehor. And then uh, in chapter 16, one month into the 11th year. So that was the 10th year of the reign of the judges. It began in Melech, successful establishment of the church. It continued in Ammonihah, this terrible interlude. And then it finished a month or a month and a half in Sidom with another success but I still believe that Alma would have called the 10th year of the reign of judges and Amulek especially kind of like 2020 for them. You know, you, you remember early in 2020, what we were dealing with were were terrible wildfires in the early part of 2020 in Australia. And that was sort of the worst problem going on in the world. And then came a pandemic and then came race riots and then came economic destruction. And so, so many people around the world are suffering and I think uh, 2020 is kind of like the, we can we could look upon today's lesson as sort of an echo of today's times, which is they had a bad year. They had a really rough year in the 10th year of the reign of the judges. And then one month into the 11th year, Ammonihah is just wiped off the map in one day to the next. The des- It's called the desolation of the Nihors because they all believed in this religion of Nihor. And then from one day to the next, They're wiped out. There's so many of them, they can't even be buried. Their bodies are just heaped up, and the smell is so terrible that no one wants to live there anymore, and no one goes to live there for a long time to come. Now, interestingly enough, I have a question that I don't really want to answer. I don't have an easy answer for. If you look forward to Alma chapter 21, verse 4, or Alma chapter 24, verses 28 to 29, you learn that the Lamanites who destroyed The people of Ammonihah, they were also Nehor's. So here's my question. Why would they slay their co-religionists? First of all, how did the Lamanites become followers of Nehor? Nehor was a Nephite. There must have been some sort of correspondence where they were learning about this doctrine. They must have been taught from someone. And if the doctrine was the most established, the doctrine of Nehor was the most established in Ammonihah, It seems likely to me that the Nehors among the Lamanites learned it from the people of Ammonihah. And yet when it came time for them to choose whom they were going to kill, they chose the people who believed in the same doctrine they did. And I guess my partial answer to the question is this. The reason that they chose to kill them is it has everything to do with the doctrine itself. So some doctrines, this is important to understand in today's world. Some doctrines ennoble us. They lift our society. They bring us closer together. The doctrine of Christ is one where that would prevent any two groups of people that embrace it from killing each other. If they truly embrace the doctrine of Christ, they could never just go in and wipe the other off the map. And yet there are doctrines in this world that at the extreme taken to their extreme, taken to their logical conclusion, they can allow this sort of behavior, this sort of travesty, this sort of evil. And the doctrine on its surface appears good. The doctrine of Nihor was what? Everyone will be saved. And yet, it's so evil underneath that it allows one group of believers to completely murder and wipe out another. So that's an important lesson, I think, to learn about doctrines in today's world. The farther you get from the doctrine of Christ, the closer you get to an evil doctrine that can allow this sort of wickedness and predation. Well, after their time in Sidon, Alma and Amulek go back to Zarahemla. And it says that Alma took Amulek to his home and administered to him for many days. So we can imagine now, this is where Amulek is finding, he's mourning, He's in. A, he's in a, period of great mourning. So he's mourning not only his wife and children, who were likely thrown into the fire, but th- at least there he can console himself with the idea that they were faithful to the end. And he's also mourning the loss of his father and his kindred, who were were killed by the Lamanites in a state of wickedness. So everyone that had been dear to him in the world was dead, and we know this about Amulek, that he would have been dead had he not accepted the doctrine of the teachings of Alma. So he has these two conflicting ideas. One is, I'm suffering because all the people that I love are gone. And also, do I feel gratitude that I'm still alive? What do I feel, right? These are all real feelings. They're not, this isn't, the the scriptures are not the kind of record that preserve this sort of emotion. We just have to imagine it. We have to put ourselves in Amulek's shoes and imagine what he was feeling. And I also imagine that it's during this time that he learns to forgive Zeezrom. And what a difficult task that would be. And yet, what an important one. Because if you don't believe in a Christ that can save the people who hurt you, then you don't believe in a Christ who can save you. That is such an important lesson. So after this time in spent in mourning, then Alma and Amulek have three years of peace and the church was established in all the land. In verse 21 of chapter 16, it says, they established the church everywhere, having got the victory over the devil. Now the, the Nephites, after they, after the Lamanites killed the people of Ammonihah, the Nephites went into battle with them and they defeated them, saved all the prisoners because of some some revelation from Alma. And then they get this, first they get a military victory and then they get this spiritual victory over the devil. And, the, and this, the military victory is that this army of enemies is out of our land. We have our prisoners back through violence. And the victory over the devil is that the word is preached, as we learn in verse 21 of chapter 16. The word is preached in purity, and the Lord is pouring out blessings on the heads of his people. So it's interesting that the Lord can bless the Nephites militarily, but that is far down the list of the, of the ways in which his blessings can come. The most important ways that God blesses people are in victories over the devil. So uh, there's a word that I didn't give you. It's a sort of a vocabulary word for today's lesson. That word is theodicy, and theo means God, T-H-E-O. Theodicy is spelled T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, it means the, the logical practice or the reasoning required to imagine a good God who can also allow the presence of evil. That is theodicy, and that's what we have engaged in in today's lesson. And it's not easy. So, And, and Satan tries to make it harder. This is really the point, that, that Satan would want us to conclude from the presence of evil in the world that God is not real or that he can't be good or that he doesn't care about me Uh, I, I know that as a single person, I spent decades wondering if God wants me to get married and I want to get married, then why hasn't it happened yet? Something about this picture is wrong. And I know that I've been doing what I can. And therefore, I have to believe God doesn't really care about me. I've been left by the wayside. Now, that is something that Satan wanted me to believe. And I didn't have any evidence to the contrary. I only had a choice. I could continue to have faith and try, and believe that God cared about me, or I could give up. And we all have our journey that takes us down that road, or else Satan isn't doing his job. Satan cares enough about destroying each of us that we all have our journey down this road. Uh, One more thing I wanted to bring up about that is this. Remember the suffering of the people that fell into that fiery pit. Anytime you think that you can entertain the lies of Satan for even a moment. Because this is a concrete example. This is a case study of how much Satan hates you and wants you to suffer. If he could, he would inspire someone to throw you in a fiery pit. If there was someone who was listening to him to such an extent that they would do that, he would rejoice in it. This is how much the enemy of your soul hates you and and wants you to make choices contrary to righteousness. And it's important to remember that. This is not just me trying to be doom and gloom. This is me telling you that there can be no peace with the enemy of your soul. There can only be victory. So the victory comes when we do what Amulek did, which is allow Christ to change us, pull us out of Ammonihah, get us through our suffering, and then help us confront the moment with the people who have wronged us and find forgiveness in our hearts and endure to the end. So Amulek is our main character in this story. He is the one who is suffering everything. He has is, he is gone from the highs to the lows and back to the highs of human endeavor and human emotion in one lesson. And if we will follow that example, the example that both we witnessed and that we imagined Amulek going through, then we will get the victory. Over the devil. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints.